How's it going, food eaters? Welcome to the Food Labels Revealed podcast, a small home-based radio program that brings you big-time information about the world of processed foods, whether you encounter them in your local grocery store or your local drive through I'm your host, Mel Weinstein, the self-described, self-effacing, self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is episode number 72. I have returned to my home studio this month. Today's show is entitled, New Food Additives in the Queue. So, a few days ago, I was thinking about what to talk uh, about for today's episode. I'm not so organized that I have the shows planned out months in advance. Usually, as the date of publication draws near, I'm kind of racking my brain. After recording 71 programs, sometimes the well of topics runs dry. But usually, when I least expect it, something new pops into my brain. I spend a, a lot of time researching and talking about additives that show up in commercial food products. However, that's after the fact. So the, the question arose in my mind, what new food additives are in the pipeline, which will eventually maybe see listed on food labels? With 10,000 approved chemicals available to food manufacturers, you got to know, given the rapid and constant changes in food science and technology, that new food additives are being created all the time. What if we could peek behind the Food and Drug Administration, FDA's curtain, to find out what new additives are being reviewed for future applications? Is that possible? Well, I poked around the internet until I found an FDA website that actually does provide this information. The information Turns out it's very public. So for today, I want to reveal some new additives likely coming our way. But before getting to the main topic at hand, I think it would be a good idea to review how the FDA actually approves new additives. Let's get government geeky here for a few minutes. In 1958, Congress passed the Food Additives Amendment Act. That was the first comprehensive law dealing with the many chemicals showing up in food products, particularly following World War II, when the processed food industry really took off. Let's look at some details of the law. By the 1950s, the FDA acknowledged that there were hundreds of new chemicals being formulated as food additives, but they, the FDA, were in no position, either financially or staff-wise, to certify the safety of all these new substances. What to do? First of all, they created a list of commonly known and time-tested food additives that they called generally recognized as safe. We know this list as GRAS, G-R-A-S, generally recognized as safe. There were 700 to 800 additives on that initial list, including such things as vinegar, vegetable oil, baking powder, spices, flavors, gums, and preservatives. 
Because these substances had been around for a long time, and consumers were not obviously keeling over dead or getting sickened by them, they received a free pass from the law's requirement that food additives be tested for safety before entering the food system. Okay, so that accounts for roughly 7.5% of the food additives in today's marketplace. What about the other 92.5%? By the way, in the show notes is a link to the FDA website where you can look up many of the additives used in the U.S. food supply. There are 80 pages of information covering roughly 4,000 additives, so reserve plenty of time for your curiosity. Note that the list is not comprehensive. It doesn't even cover half of the approved additives. Since the government didn't have the means to certify the safety of the ever-increasing number of new food ingredients, it was decided that it was on the food manufacturer to prove, within reason, that their additive did not injure or harm consumers. That meant that the company could use any recognized scientific means to do that, such as an in-house analytical and biological testing lab, or hire outside firms to do the work. Do you think that sounds a little like the fox guarding the hen house? Sort of, but the food product companies were motivated to prove that their products were safe because they had to convince food manufacturers to buy them to create new food formulations. The manufacturers had skin in the game. They needed to protect their investment in the development and application of the new substances, so confirmation from the FDA was critical. The safety testing had to be done right to convince the FDA to accept their data. According to the Food Amendments Act of 1958, there are three ways that a company could get a new additive into our food system. The first method, the company petitions approval for the new additive. This is the toughest route to follow since this is tantamount to seeking pre-market approval. The FDA could set restrictions on the use of the additive. Plus, the company would still need to run tests proving the safety of the substance. Needless to say, that process is not only costly, but very time-consuming, and most companies try to avoid it. The second method. If the new substance is a listed exception to the definition of a food additive, it can get approved. Typical listed exceptions include coloring agents and dietary substances. The requirements for this route of approval are less rigorous and time-consuming. Finally, the third method. A company claims that their new substance is grass, generally recognized as safe. Through their own safety investigation, they show that the additive is safe under the conditions of its intended use. This is the quickest method for new additives to get approved and does not require pre-market review or approval. This gets the FDA out of the loop to prove that a new food additive meets the GRASS standard. The companies get a lot of leeway to determine how to demonstrate the safety of their product. After that determination is made, then there is only one step left to get FDA approval, or the company could just not bother with the last step. Yes, they don't 
have to get approval. They can just go ahead and start selling the additive to food manufacturers and hope for the best, but of course, that's pretty risky. If the company decides to request a grass determination, then the FDA reviews the petition for scientific legitimacy. The FDA then issues a letter to the producer stating one of three outcomes. Number one, they accept the grass determination. Number two, they say that the grass determination is insufficient. Or three, the review is discontinued based on the request from the producer. This determination by the FDA is is rather strange since it's not an official approval and the producer is still on the hook if there's a safety issue with their product. Also, down the road, if an issue arises, the FDA could degrass the new additive and remove it from the marketplace. If a substance does get removed from from the food system, the company still has the option to choose the official approval process. That is number one, as mentioned earlier. However, when it comes to the approval of new food ingredients, we've got a long way to go. With the legal loophole in current food laws, and an additive manufacturer can still put an untested chemical into our food system without prior approval. If that manufacturer seeks a nod from the FDA, they can still do their own safety t- testing without a neutral third party or the federal government certifying the results. Our government puts an awful lot of trust in chemical companies and food manufacturers to do the right things, but our history reveals that this trust is often overestimated. Most consumers are not going to notice that the foods that they're eating with these new ingredients have not been approved by neutral government laboratories. They're in the dark. Too often, substances wind up in our food that later prove toxic or unhealthy. For the government not to take the time and expense to test and approve new additives just increases the possibility of a future health and safety issue. Note that the vast majority of additives get certified through the approval loophole. With that backdrop, let's turn our attention to the new kids on the block. The link to the FDA website listing grass notices is included in the show notes in case you want to do your own exploring. What you'll see at the website on the first page is a table with four columns. Column number one is the file number assigned by the FDA. Column number two is the name of the substance. And the name is actually a hyperlink, which will reveal considerable information about the company's petition. Column number three is the date of closure. The date will only appear if the substance has been approved for use as an additive. And then lastly, column number four is entitled FDA's letter and refers to the status of the application. So in this, uh, in this episode, I'm, I'm going to explore five potential new additives with a focus on diversity. When I first observed the notice list, the very top term, notice number 1027, caught my attention. I actually recognized the name of the substance. The biological name is Sincepilum 
dulcificum. I probably butchered it. Uh, but the common name is miracle fruit. Years ago, I purchased miracle fruit in tablet form as a gag gift. It has an unusual property. After letting a tablet dissolve on the tongue, the sour taste of a lemon, grapefruit, or vinegar will turn into a sweet taste, which may last for over an hour. Sounds like a miracle, right? I can attest to its effectiveness. It's still sold at online stores like Amazon. Additional claims for the product include the boosting of saliva output, altering metallic tastes, and the reduction of sugar cravings. The fruit is a red berry that grows in West Africa. The active ingredient is called miraculin. According to Wikipedia, the FDA has banned the import of the fruit, stating that it is an illegal, undeclared sweetener. I guess that explains why it's on the notice list. If you click on the name hyperlink, the following information appears. 1. The intended use in foods and beverages. 2. The name and address of the notifier, that is the company submitting it. 3. The information sent to the FDA by the notifier, that is the grass notice, which is a hyperlink as well. And 4. The status of the petition. In the case of the miracle fruit, Here's what appears. Quote, it's intended as a taste modifier at levels up to 6% in water-based beverages, carbonated beverages, fruit juices and nectars, fruit smoothies, fruit drinks and aids, fermented dairy products, yogurts, and tea beverages. The notifier and its company is Miracle Fruit Farm in Miami, Florida. The approval is pending. When you click on the Grass Notice hyperlink, quite a bit of information, actually 50 pages, pops up, including one, the letter to the FDA from August 2021, two, detailed use in beverages, three, properties of miracle fruit, four, method of manufacture, five, detailed physical and chemical properties, six, measures of heavy metal, microbiological, and pesticide contaminations, seven, results of taste tests, eight, clinical trials with cancer patients, nine, estimated daily intakes by different segments of the population, 10, safety data from a literature search, 11, the effects on digestion, and 12, allergen and toxicity research. All right, so there's a lot to learn. Uh, if you go to that that particular part of the website, and you can find out a lot about miracle fruit. The second additive of interest is notice number 1024. The chemical name is D-Psychos. Okay, so I'll spell that out. It's kind of weird. So it's capital D hyphen... P-S-I-C-O-S-E. The D designation for a molecule in organic chemistry is pretty complicated to explain, for it has to do with a system of nomenclature. 
But to put it simply, uh, some molecules come in pairs such that their structures, that is how the atoms are bonded together, are identical. But the molecules are mirror images of each other, much like the left hand is a mirror image of the right hand. Oftentimes, the properties of the two molecules are strikingly different. For example, blood sugar or glucose is actually designated D-glucose. Its mirror image, called L-glucose, is not found in nature and cannot be metabolized by humans. Another example you may have heard about is L-DOPA, a drug provided to people with Parkinson's disease to boost the level of dopamine. Its mirror image is D-DOPA, and that is biologically inactive. It won't work. The letter designations D and L are assigned to distinguish mirror image molecules, but the explanation of that nomenclature is, is really too complicated to delve into here. Okay, back to D-psychose. Another feature of the name is the OSE ending, O-S-E. In organic chemistry, substances that are classified as sugars will have names ending in OSE. For example, glucose, fructose, sucrose, etc. Since sugars taste sweet, we know that D-psychose is a sweetener. Food manufacturers are always looking for new sweeteners, particularly ones that are natural, non-caloric, and high intensity to replace conventional sweeteners like cane sugar, beet sugar, and honey, which can promote tooth decay, adversely affect uh, diabetics, and lead to health problems. So what do we know about D-psychose, a substance you probably have never heard about? It's also called D-allulose, and that name is really more common. And its chemical structure is similar to fructose, but D-psychose has a lower caloric content. This sugar was discovered in the 1940s and exists at low levels in a variety of plants, including wheat, figs, raisins, maple syrup, and molasses. The physical properties of D-psychose are similar to cane sugar, that is sucrose. So it has been used as a low-calorie sugar replacement. In 2012, the FDA gave the additive grass status, but it's still not been approved in the European Union. In 2019, the FDA exempted D-psychose from inclusion in the total and added sugars listing of the Nutrition Facts label. Commercially, the substance is produced from the enzymatic conversion of corn and beet sugar. It's used in such products as beverages, yogurt, ice cream, and baked goods. The food ingredients company Tate & Lyle, which is out of England, sells D-psychose, or allulose, under the trade name Dulcia Prima. This additive is pretty safe, but like uh, sugar alcohols, it, it can cause indigestion and flagellants in some people. The caloric content of this sweetener is 10% that of table sugar, and it's 70% 
as sweet. Having stated that D-Psychos has already been approved by the FDA as an additive in the food supply, why does it show up in another grass notice? Well, when I opened the grass notice, which is pending, I read the following, quote, Intended for use as a sweetener at levels ranging from 2% to 100% in bakery products, non-alcoholic beverages, alcoholic beverages, fruit juices, cereals, cereal and protein bars, chewing gum, frostings, frozen dairy desserts, yogurt, dressings, puddings, fillings, candy, jams and jellies, sugar substitutes, sauces and syrups, and coffee mixes. Jesus, is there anything left out there? In my opinion, the FDA is being petitioned because a new manufacturing process is proposed and or to allow the use of D-Psychos in a broader range of products. For example, dressings, puddings, alcoholic beverages. The petitioner is a company called Grass Associates LLC, who is an agent for the company Blue California, a manufacturer of specialty ingredients for food and cosmetic products. The FDA petition is a 123-page document describing the Blue California production process, comparison of specifications to earlier FDA approvals, detailed composition lists, intended use in various food products, history of use in other countries, a discussion of its safety, toxicity studies, estimated daily intakes, and many other tedious details. If you're curious about the additive approval process, check out uh, an FDA letter at the website uh, from one of the petitioning companies because it's incredible the amount and breadth of information that's provided. Of course, the flip side is that the FDA is very trusting of the accuracy and completeness of the data in providing their approval. The third additive to explore is Bacillus subtilis strain R0179. It's grass notice number 1007. This substance is a common soil bacterium also found in the human gut. Bacillus subtilis is very stable and survives passage through the intestinal tract. The organism produces enzymes which have been isolated and used in food systems. Also, before the advent of antibiotics, it was used to treat GI and urinary tract infections. It's just one of a number of bacteria that appear in the list of current FDA grass applications. I have to admit that I'm rather baffled that bacteria are considered as general food additives. Underline the word general. For hundreds if not thousands of years, bacteria have been used in fermented foods such as sauerkraut, pickles, yogurt, fermented beans, kefir, kimchi, kombucha, and others. But outside of animal feeds, I haven't been aware of specific strains of bacteria being used as food additives and other types of people food. When I opened the grass notice for Bacillus subtilis, I saw that the originating company was Lalamand Health Solutions in Quebec, Canada. The intended uses were as 
an ingredient in baked goods, beverages, breakfast cereals, chewing gum, frostings, dairy product analogs, ices, nut products, plant protein products, processed fruits and juices, and snack foods. That's a lot of stuff. The maximum level was listed as a billion colony forming units per serving. That sounds imposing. I've only seen bacteria counts on yogurt products containing live cultures. According to the notice communication, in 2012 the FDA had previously approved the use of the bacterium in whole grain yeast spreads, muffins, kombucha, 100% fruit and vegetable juices, and diet salad dressings. Curious about this type of additive, I did an online search looking for the reasons for its use. All I found was information about its use as a probiotic. It is known that ingestion of significant amounts of B. subtilis spores may restore normal gut microbiota in humans following extensive antibiotic usage or an illness. I wonder if these kinds of additives are specifically listed on nutrition facts labels or whether they just show up generically as a bacterial culture. If anyone listening to this program knows the answer to that question, please let me know. The fourth additive of interest is sodium hyaluronate. Uh, I may not be pronouncing that right. Uh, Its grass notice is number 976. This substance caught my attention because I'm familiar with with its medical usage. As someone who has dealt with the pain of degenerative arthritis, about 10 years ago, I came across hyaluronic acid, more briefly called HA, a remedy touted for relieving joint pain. Initially, it was approved for treating horses with leg pain. Then later, human supplements became available for internal use and anti-aging serums for external use on the skin. Hyaluronic acid is also used by orthopedic surgeons for direct injection in inflamed joints. HA is a natural lubricant found in the synovial fluid of joints and helps lubricate them. Surprisingly, the FDA is now considering a water-soluble derivative, the sodium hyaluronate, as a food additive. When I opened the grass notice, here are the intended uses that were listed. Fruit drinks and aids, carbonated soft drinks, candy, milk drinks, yogurt, and cereals, with a amount of 40 to 60 milligrams per serving. Now in supplements, uh, 100 to 200 milligrams per tablet or capsule is typical. The grass petitioner is Blumage Biotechnology Corporation out of Shandong, China. In its petition, the company claims that Since HA is a common natural component of animal foods, it normally winds up in soups or stews. They claim that European countries like France and Spain use it as an ingredient in traditional dishes. Since it's already found in some foods without issue, Bloomage thinks it should be approved for common usage. If the FDA 
approve this drug as a food supplement, how will it be listed on food labels? And would arthritis sufferers benefit from consuming foods with sodium hyaluronate in them? Presently, additive approval is pending. The fifth and last potential food additive to discuss is synthetic amorphous silica, simply called SAS, and the grass number is 996. Its intended use is as a carrier in white sugar at levels ranging from 50 to 300 milligrams per 100 grams of sugar. The petitioner is the Du Matak Company of Petak Tikva, Israel. This material is related to silica gel packs, which you have probably used. It's a desiccant found in containers to keep merchandise dry. In this case, the SAS is food grade and is mechanically combined with sugar to form a combination which increases the perception of sweetness and speeds up the dissolving of the sugar. Using SAS in this manner could reduce the amount of sugar needed to produce a desired level of sweetness. The petitioner states that their SAS product has already been approved by the FDA for other food uses and would therefore be safe as a food additive. By the way, silica compounds have been used for many years as anti-caking agents to keep granulated foods like salt from sticking together. The current status of this FDA grass petition is approved, so maybe you'll be seeing SAS in sweet food products soon. All right, well, to conclude, this was a short introduction into the potential additives that may wind up in the marketplace. Among the take-home message are the following. The uh, inventory of food additives available to manufacturers is always growing. The FDA through its GRASS program, provides a fast track for the approval of new additives. There is always a list of proposed additives in the FDA docket waiting for approval. The types of potential additives submitted for approval can range from old ones seeking new applications, biological substances like bacteria, botanicals never before used in the U.S. food supply, and former drugs submitted for food usage. Well, that's all for today, food eaters. I hope you enjoyed this brief journey into the world of FDA approvals and learned a few things about the types of substances that are currently or soon to be entering our food supply. If you know others who would enjoy this podcast, share the episode through your digital app, please by sending a link in a text or by sharing your social media pages. To all the listeners in podcast land, old and new, I appreciate you tuning in. If you have a little more time, I'd greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review at the iTunes store. That will help spread the word. If you have an Apple smartphone, bring up the podcast library and select the Food Labels Revealed podcast. Scroll to the bottom until you see ratings and reviews then click on Write a Review. 
If you don't have a streaming device, you can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or just by Googling Food Labels Revealed. I can be reached at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. Again, that's foodlabelsrevealed, all one phrase, at gmail.com. Until later, remember this. If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is called Bright Wish, composed by Kevin McLode. <laughs>